you please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 31 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 600. So we finished up the, the first section of Isaiah. And if you remember, the, Isaiah can roughly be broken up into two sections, chapters 1 through 31. And this actually covers events that took place during the lifetime of the prophet Isaiah. And as we've seen, the, the dominant uh, world power uh, during this time was the nation of Assyria. And this first section was, was primarily a prophecy of judgment. Judgment both, both on God's people Judah and Israel as well as judgment on the surrounding nations. In the case of God's people, this judgment was because of their covenant unfaithfulness. It was due to their rejecting their distinctiveness, their, their identity as God's people, their desire really to be like everyone else. It was because they rejected their God. Now, in the case of the pagan nations, they were judged because of their own wickedness. They had rejected the light that God had given to them, and they willfully did what was evil. And this judgment was just. But throughout this section of judgment, we also saw God's grace and his mercy at work. Continually, God gave them signs. He gave them prophecies of hope. Hope that they had of a promised redemption. And this was through the Messiah. And we had looked at many of these prophecies in in Isaiah that are pointing to the Messiah, that are pointing directly to Christ. In fact, there are so many references to Christ in the book of Isaiah that some call the book of Isaiah actually a fifth gospel because we see Christ so much in it. But beginning in chapter 40, the tone and the message of the book shifts. The prophecy in this section is intended for a time long after Isaiah had died. And as we've seen in the the first section, God had protected his city, protected Jerusalem. He protected the people of Judah from falling to the Assyrian Empire. And this was all of God. But the people continued to rebel against God. There was going to be a judgment. God's patience was going to run out. And that judgment did come. It came in the form of Babylon, in the form of the Babylonian captivity. And this is the situation that the audience that we read, that's what they find themselves that we're reading in this next section. And remember chapter 39 that we looked at two weeks ago with the visit of the Babylonian envoys, this actually foreshadows this judgment. Isaiah ominously tells King Hezekiah that his foolish and prideful actions of showing all his armory to the Babylonian envoys, that this set into motion events that would eventually lead to the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of his kingdom. And sadly, if you remember, King Hezekiah didn't even seem concerned. He was, said, well, at least in my lifetime, things are going to be okay. He seemed unconcerned about this future shame. Well, this section now fast forwards, what we're looking at today, fast forwards to a time of the Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem had fallen. The people are in exile. God is now chastising his people for their pride and for their idolatry. God has now gotten their attention. And as such, the message of this section is not a message of judgment, but rather it is a message of comfort. God's words here are meant to encourage. They're meant to strengthen his hurting people. In fact, the opening words of this very chapter, the beginning of the second section, are comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And we've already looked at the beginning uh, back in December. It's part of our Advent series. If you remember from that first sermon, God's comfort and encouragement for his people, they were the same as, they, as we saw through the first section. The comfort came through the Messiah, came through the, the prophecy of the Messiah, the prediction of Christ. 
See, verses 3 and and 4 of of chapter 40, they speak of the voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. We know, we know this prophecy is fulfilled by John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet and the, the herald of the Christ. Well, this morning... We're going to look at one of the, the most well-known, one of the most encouraging sections in Isaiah. And this section is addressing those who are hurting, uh, those people who are in exile, they're suffering, and they're wondering, they're wondering, has God forgotten me? And I think this message is just as encouraging to us today. We are people suffering in our exile in this fallen world. I mean, just listen to our prayer requests. We are in a world that is really at enmity with God and enmity with us, his people. So Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 and 31. Hear now the word of the God. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, each of us here, we are are tired, we are weary. And Father, we need this comfort. We need the encouragement that comes from your word. And Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will anoint my words and I will speak only your truth. Father, I pray that you will protect us from any distractions, any thoughts, any concerns that we have, and that for this time we will hear from you. We will be comforted by your word and we will be changed. We will see you and you will be glorified. Would you pray it in Jesus' name? Amen. So we're going to get real honest now. How many of you are brave enough to admit? Am I brave enough to admit that sometimes we are not very happy with God? Sometimes we don't like the way he runs his universe. Sometimes we think that God is asleep at the switch. Sometimes we we just wish God would do things the way we want him to do them. Now in my head, I know my theology. I know Romans 8.28. I know that all things work out for good. Even a 36-year-old having possibly terminal cancer. We know all things work out for good to those who are called according to his purpose. I know this in my head. But I feel in my heart, I, I feel in my heart that God is just not keeping up his end of the bargain. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure there are many of us who feel like God has forgotten us, that God has moved on without us, that God is working somewhere, working somewhere else. God is working in someone else. And we may not be suffering. We may not have cancer. We may not be in constant pain. For the most part, things may be good. For the most part, we may be comfortable. But there's always this one area, this one area where we're we're praying. We're praying desperately, and it seems like these prayers are, are falling on deaf ears. Has God forgotten me? Does God hear me? And I'm not talking about sinful prayers. I'm not talking about things that that gratify our fleshly desires. I'm talking about prayers for for good things. Things that will bring God glory. Things that are in alignment with his word. 
We're, we're praying. We're listening to God. We're looking to see where God is working. We're trusting him. We're waiting on him. We check our motives. We seek godly counsel. We feel like we're on the right track. We feel that we are in his will. But God just doesn't respond. Or when he does respond, it's in the opposite way that we're praying. Have you ever felt this way? And we have a genuine heartfelt longing to please God and and, and to bring him glory and to, to make his name known, to see the lost come to him. To see the kingdom advance, we want to be used by God. We want to be be obedient to God. But then nothing happens. We wonder, has God forgotten me? I mean, it could be a desire to have a a spouse, right? We want a godly wife or a godly husband. Someone to go through life with, to raise a family. But the prospects are non-existent. It could be a desire for, for a job or, or a ministry to use our God-given talents and abilities for his glory. But the opportunities are nowhere to be found. It could be a health problem, like we've, we've prayed for several this morning. We could see doctors. We could, we could do everything right. We could take care of uh, ourselves. And we still hear that diagnosis of cancer. Or the issue just seems to get worse. It could be financial worries. We just can't seem to get our head above water no matter what we do. Our, our bank account seems to get lower, we get more and more into debt. Or it could be even more painful than these things. It could be a troubled relationship. It could be being unequally yoked in a marriage. It could be an unsaved loved one. And we can't help but wonder, has God not seen my tears? Has God not heard my prayers? And this is what God's people felt in Babylon. They had lost their home. They had lost their identity. They had lost their freedom. They had lost their independence. And worse still, they regularly had to see their God blasphemed, their God ridiculed, their God humiliated. You see, in the ancient world, human wars were really seen as a battle between deities, between the gods. And if you lost a war or you were conquered by an enemy, it meant your God was weak. He was inferior. And this was the constant pain endured by those who, who genuinely loved and served Yahweh and earnestly longed to see him glorified. They kept seeing hearing him being blasphemed. And the people had thought that God had forgotten them. That he did not see their shame. That God had disregarded their, their rights. This is the very thing that God addresses in verse 27. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. See, God knows exactly what they're thinking. God knows they feel abandoned. He knows they feel like their way is hidden from God, and that their rights are disregarded by him. And how does God answer this complaint? Well, this is the same answer that God gives to us when we think that he has forgotten us, when we feel that somehow our way is hidden from him when we feel that God has somehow disregarded our rights. And you got to love God's answer. See, his answer is basically to tell them what they already know. God reminds them of who they are dealing with. God tells them about himself. But not only does he tell them about himself, he tells them about themselves. John Calvin said that true knowledge, true knowledge consists of two things. It consists of knowing God, 
and knowing ourselves. If you know these two things, you know all you need to know. And that's what we see in this section. True knowledge. And true knowledge also brings us comfort during these times that we feel that God has abandoned us, that God has forgotten us. So verse 28 we read, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. See, even the way in this verse that, 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 that it brings it as a question, it indicates that the Lord is not imparting any new information. He's reminding them. They already know. He knows that, they, that, that, that they're, they're tired, that they're discouraged. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? And the implied answer is, yes, they have known. Yes, they have heard. He's not giving them anything new. And the people don't need new information. What they need is a reminder. They need encouragement. And this is so common in the Christian life, is it not? When we get discouraged, when we get depressed, when we get overwhelmed by our own sinfulness or by life in this fallen world, the thing we need most is not new information. We need a reality check. Because it is so easy for our thinking. What happens? Our thinking becomes skewed. It's so easy for the enemy, for Satan to get into our heads and deceive us into believing his lies. And when this happens, we don't need new information. We need to remember what we already know. We need to remember. Remember the truth about God. The truth about ourselves. And think about how many times God reminds his people in Scripture of things they already know. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. He reminds him. God reminds his people of his past faithfulness. And by doing this, this is the grounds of their assurance. This is the assurance of their future, of God's future faithfulness. So when we are discouraged, when we, we feel like God has abandoned us, we need to remember what we already know about God. We need to, to doggedly hold on to those memories and not let Satan mess with our heads by feeding us lies that God has forgotten me. So what specifically is God reminding his hurting people of in verse 28? Well, the first thing the Lord reminds them of is that he, that Yahweh is the everlasting God. God is highlighting his eternality. He's highlighting the fact that he is outside of time. See, a big pro- part of the problem that people were feeling, a big part of the problem we feel when we think God has forgotten us, is the problem of waiting. Right? I hate waiting. I'm sure most of you hate waiting. And when we're waiting, we feel that God is not active. And this is a problem for each of us. We, we, we are temporal beings. We exist in time. We are slaves to time. And because of this, we hate waiting. We want instant gratification. We want, we're, we're like that character in the Willy Wonka movie. Remember the character in the Willy Wonka movie? Don't care how, I want it now. That's how we are. We want it now. That's us. Think about how our culture is, is really centered around this, this desire for instant gratification. Hungry? We got fast food. We got microwave frozen meals. You can, get, you can eat in, in 10 minutes. Want to watch a movie? Instantly watch any movie in, that's ever been made. We can stream it to our phones. Remember not long ago, if you watched a TV series, you actually had to wait another week for the next episode to come out? Not anymore. Now we can binge watch an entire series, an entire television show in one sitting. And some people have done that. And because we are such slaves to time, we expect the Lord to be the same. And he's not. He's outside of time. He's not bound by time. 
Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord's perspective is eternal. It's from everlasting. This perspective and, and trusting this perspective, this, this allows us to, to endure this period of waiting when we feel that the Lord has forgotten us. It increases our patience during these times. Continuing in verse 28, Isaiah moves from speaking of God's eternality to speaking of his sovereignty. He reminds his suffering people that he is the creator. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. And specifically mentioning the ends of the earth. Here this is emphasizing the sheer scope, the sheer magnitude of the creation of which our Lord, our God, is the creator. The word ends here means uttermost parts. So it's saying he is the creator of the uttermost parts of the earth. I love a clear night going outside and looking at all the stars in the sky, looking at the, and just thinking that there's trillions and trillions of stars and galaxy, and my God created every single one of them. Every single one from the vastness of these trillions and trillions of galaxies all the way down to the minute details of a subatomic particle. Our God has created the ends of the earth. And our God does not faint. He doesn't grow weary. He's not overwhelmed by the vastness of the universe. Oh man, it's so, it's so hard taking care of this universe. No. He doesn't grow weary upholding every single subatomic particle in this vast universe. And he knows, and he controls, and he understands every single particle, every single aspect of this creation. His understanding is unsearchable. Do we really think that he has forgotten us? Do we really think that he is unaware of our difficulty? Do we really think that he is unable to help us? And this verse, in one sense, is meant to overwhelm us. It's meant really to, to, to shake us into clear thinking. It's a reminder of just who our God is. See, it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to be blasphemous in, in our thoughts of God and think that somehow he is accountable for us. He's not doing what I want. He just needs to get, to get, get the, with the program. He needs to get his act together. It's so easy for us to think this. And this verse is a gentle reminder. A reminder to God's suffering people of exactly who he is. This verse is kind of like a, a minimized version of how God answered Job from the whirlwind. Remember Job chapters 38 to 41. So you've got multiple chapters here of Job where God just blasts Job with question after question after question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you? Question after question. And this is intended to let Job and, and us know exactly who we are dealing with, who God is. See, God is not like us. He is, not, he is God and we are not. But God also understands the, the pain and the weakness of his people. And he is so gracious and he is so merciful. He doesn't blast them like he did Job. He just gives this gentle, simple reminder in one verse. But this verse makes the same point. God is God. God is sovereign. And God is eternal. But this verse only gives us one aspect of God. It shows us God's raw and awesome power. And this is a very important aspect. But taken on its own, this aspect is, is really far from comforting. In fact, taken on its own, this aspect is utterly terrifying. Taking on its own an encounter with, with God, with the, the raw and awesome power of God, it would, it would absolutely get our attention. 
It would completely consume us. Any other problem, any other concern that we could have, we, any other concern we could even conceive of would be utterly meaningless when we are counting, encountering the mighty God. Remember Isaiah's own encounter with God in, in chapter 6? Remember Isaiah sees, sees the Lord in a temple high and lifted up with the, the cherubim and the, and the seraphim singing holy, holy, holy? Do you remember what Isaiah's reaction to this was? He goes, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. A man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. How about the Apostle Peter? Remember Apostle Peter's first reaction to meeting Jesus? Peter was in a fishing boat, and he had fished all night. He hadn't caught any fish. Then Jesus comes out and tells Jesus to set down his nets again. And, and Peter's like, I've been out all night. What is this? But he, but he humors Jesus, and he puts his nets in, and he gets this miraculous catch. So many fish that it almost sinks his boat. Do you remember Peter's reaction? Right, you would think Peter would be ecstatic. Wow, this is awesome. Wow, I, I found this guy who can, I, I'm going to be rich with all the fish that I'm getting with Jesus. You would think he'd be jumping up and down, singing and, and profusely praising Jesus. But that's not what, Jesus said, what Peter says. In Luke 5, 8, Peter says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, Peter's reaction is a natural reaction to an encounter with the power of the Almighty God. See, we need more information than simply God's power in order to be comforted. We also need to get a picture of his favor toward us. See, God's strength is only a comfort, only a comfort when that strength is working for our good. I mean, think about it. I know some of you played football. I know David plays football. Think you're playing football, and then you see the biggest and the strongest man you have ever seen, and he's on that field playing. Well, his size and his strength are a great comfort if he's on your team but a great terror if he's on the other team. Well, the audience of this prophecy, they were on God's team. They were God's covenant people who were suffering in exile. They were God's people. They were on his team. And my friends, if you here are, if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are on God's team. His strength and his power are for us. Verse 29 shows how his grace and power benefit us, how, it, how his hurting people benefit from their almighty God. Verse 29 says, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. See, this is the key. This is the turning point. This is the reality that, that changes everything. The almighty, eternal, sovereign God who created all things, who knows all things, who controls all things, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. See, he knows our struggles. He knows our trials. He understands our frustrations. And he gives us power to endure, even when we feel that he has forgotten us. And even though this verse is given to a specific people at a specific time in history, and it's always wise to interpret Scripture within its context, I think this verse is really a universal promise to God's people. It's a description of God's character. He provides power to his people. When we are faint, when we have no power in ourselves, he provides power. And this is both a great comfort to us, but it's also something that is seldom experienced in the Christian life. So the question is why? Why is this great blessing, this great promise, given to us here, and not just here, but elsewhere in Scripture, why is it so seldom experienced in the Christian life? And the problem, the answer is that we rely on ourselves. We rely on ourselves. See, we're too strong in ourselves. We never get to that point of desperation. We never see God alone as our only answer. So we look to ourselves for the answer. 
We look to our own abilities, to our own strength, to our own technology. We refuse to look to God. And because of this, we are cut off from his strength. We are cut off from his power because we think we do not need it. We don't seek it. We trust in ourselves. We look to our own power. And the ironic thing is we delude ourselves and we vastly overestimate our own strength. See, the truth is not that we are so strong that we don't need God. The truth is that we are so deluded that we do not recognize just how weak we truly are. We don't recognize how weak we truly are. And this failure to see reality has made us miserable. But we refuse to even acknowledge the source of this misery. We desperately hold on to the delusion of self-sufficiency, even when everything around us is falling apart. See, we can't let go of this delusion because this is all we have. We do not trust the words of verse 29, that God himself will provide to us the power, and God himself will increase our strength when our minuscule strength is exhausted. So as Calvin said, true knowledge comes from knowing God and knowing ourselves. And we cling to this delusion because we don't know God. We don't know God on on, on an experiential level. We don't trust his promises to give us strength. And this comes also from a failure to know ourselves and to know just how weak we truly are. And it's verse 30. Verse 30 here is the gentle reminder about ourselves. This verse shows us really just how weak we truly are. Look at verse 30. It says, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. See, this verse is is a reminder to us, even when we are at our strongest, as a youth or as a young man, even then we are limited. Even then we experience weariness and, and exhaustion. We are finite. Even at our best, we are finite. And this verse gently remi- is a gently reminds us of the folly of relying on ourselves. See, the truth is that even at our best, and we are often very far from our best, but even at our best, we are insufficient for what God requires of us. So let me state this as clearly as possible. The Christian life is impossible to live by our own strength. Not not hard to live by our strength. It is impossible to live the Christian life in our own strength. See, God calls us to live in a way that requires his supernatural strength. We cannot do this on our own, even though we try all the time. That's why we fail to live a successful Christian life, because it is impossible to do on our own strength. And until we accept this fact, accept that we are weak and faint and completely bankrupt, until we accept this fact, we will never look to him. We will never rely on his power. We will never tap into his power, a power that is essential to do what he has called us to do. It is our natural strength or or perceived natural strength that is really our downfall. In verse 31, this is is a very well-known verse, and it describes what God's power working in us looks like. This describes really the requirements for the Christian life. And verse 31 starts with a a prerequisite. It starts with a requirement. And look at the first line of this verse where we see this prerequisite. It says, but they who wait for the Lord. So what is this prerequisite? This applies to those who wait for the Lord. And here we come full circle. This is us. right? We're the people who wait on the Lord. These are the people who were exiled in Babylon. These are the people who wait for the Lord. 
See, we think God has forgotten us. We think God has forgotten me. But rather, what he wants is for us to wait on the Lord. And this waiting upon the Lord, when we are weak, when we are faint, when we feel that we have no might, what this does is this opens up God's power to flow to us and for our strength to be increased by his strength. And as the verse says, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They renew their strength because they are filled with his strength. And when we do this, we are able to do things that are not natural for us. Because we are doing them not by our strength, but we are doing them in his strength. So how does this verse describe these things that we do in his strength? It says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. And I love the imagery of this verse. I think of, of like the Rocky Mountains and this eagles fly, flying thousands of feet over. They're soaring. Things that we could never do. And this, this imagery conveys power. It conveys confidence. It conveys strength and vision. You can imagine that the eagle up there can see for hundreds of miles as he's soaring up there. It gives us this, this vision that we don't naturally have. And this is what's given to the one who waits upon the Lord. And this is the very opposite result of what would be expected. See, we expected that we often feel weak, we feel anxious, we feel frustrated, we feel confused when we're waiting. We're thinking, God has forgotten me. What's going on? We got, we got this anxiety. And the difference is that we are reacting not in our strength. That's what we're, when we're, we're, we're anxious and, 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 and weak. But we, when we wait on the Lord in his strength, when we react in his strength, then we mount up on wings like eagles. But notice that the, the verse doesn't end here. There, there is more that is promised to those who wait upon the Lord. See, the first part, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. This, this is obviously not literal. We're not, we're not going to sprout wings. We're not going to literally have the power to fly. This portion of the verse speaks of, of the inner transformation that takes place in the believer's spirit when he waits upon the Lord and receives the Lord's power in exchange for our own feebleness. And this change is, is internal. It's a change to our, our thinking. It changes our perspective. We feel the Lord's strength. We feel the Lord's confidence. We have his vision. We have his perspective on the manner. We're no longer anxious. We're no longer stressed. We're no longer confused. But we're calm. We're focused. We're at peace. But the supernatural change in our disposition doesn't stay internal. It affects our actions. And this is what we see in the, in, in the next line of the verse. Those who wait upon the Lord, they shall run and not be weary. See, running here represents the outward manifestation of this inner peace and this, uh, in, in our outward actions. See, we will be able to continue that job search, right? We're, we're, we're waiting for that job. It's just not coming. We'll continue because we have that peace. We're going in his strength. We'll continue to, to, uh, to do the things to improve our health and take care of ourselves. Uh, we'll continue to, to looking for a spouse and making relationships or for whatever al- actions are necessary for the specific situation we find ourselves. We will be able to do those things in his power, in his strength, in his peace. See, we're not passive. This is not talking as we wait for the Lord. We're not passive. We are active. But we are active not in our own strength. We are active in his strength. And this part of the verse says that we will do all those countless things and not grow weary. 
We will not be burnt out. We will not feel like I'm just wasting my time. Nothing's going to happen. We will trust in the Lord in all these things. And this also includes the most important of all these outward activities that we do while we're waiting for the Lord. You know what's the most important thing we do? Pray. We pray. And the one who waits upon the Lord will pray and not be weary. So when we pray in our own strength, it's really easy just to, to despair and, and, to, and to get weary. But when we pray in the Lord's strength, we will not. We will continue to focus and continue to actually grow, gather strength from those prayers. And this brings us to the very last clause in this verse. The last description of the one who waits upon the Lord. It says, they shall walk and not be faint. Now, at first glance, it appears that this has the order backwards, doesn't it? But our natural order, we would, we would be reversed. We would instinctively think that you start small, you walk, and then you run, and then you're able to fly, fly like an eagle. But no, that's not how this verse is using these words. As I mentioned, the mounting up on wing, eagle's wings, this refers to having God's perspective as, seeing, as affecting our thinking, thinking the way God thinks. God infuses us with his power, and we begin to think the way he thinks. And then this thinking affects our actions. Then we run and not weary. And lastly, this godly thinking and these godly actions, they change our character. And this is what's represented by walking. This represents our Christian walk. So this is the end goal of the entire process described in this verse. It will transform our character so that we can walk with the Lord and not be faint. And isn't that the solution to our problem? Isn't this why we get frustrated with God? Isn't this why we, we think that he has abandoned us? This is why we wonder, has God forgotten me? It's because we grow faint in our Christian walk, and it happens to all of us. Our faith grows weak, and then we think God is asleep. It's a switch. We think we're smarter than God. And here's our applications. It's very simple. The truth is that every one of us will have times when we feel that God has forgotten me when we are frustrated, when we are discouraged because God is not following our plan, doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. So what do we do? We remember. We remember who God is. We remember his power. We remember his eternality. We remember his goodness. And we remember who we are. We remember our weakness. We remember our limitations. We remember that we are beloved by him. Then we trust. We trust his promises, his promise to give us power in our weakness. We trust that when we have no might, he will increase our strength. And then in his strength, we wait. We wait upon the Lord. And when we do this, my friends, when we do this, prepare to be amazed. Prepare to be mounted up on eagle's wings. Prepare to be given a new vision. Prepare to be given a divine perspective to our thinking. To have our thinking to be more like the thinking of the Lord. And this changed thinking will naturally lead to changed actions. Actions that are in alignment with God. And this changed thinking, these changed actions will change our character. And enable us to walk with our God and not grow faint. And my friends, this, this character makes us more like Christ. And it brings him glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that there are many here who are struggling. There are many here who think God that you have forgotten us. But Lord, I pray that you will change our thinking, that you will give us your strength. We are desperate. We need to know who you are, what you can do. And Father, we pray that you will change us, that you will give us that perspective, that you will 
raise us up, mount us up on wings like eagles, all for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.